You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary in Iowa. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. Preachers, if you were to look at your preaching, would you focus mainly on one part of the Bible over another? If you were like me, you'd probably preach more from the New Testament. Bible readers, if you were to say where you read from Scripture more often, would it be the New Testament? Sometimes we may not intentionally do so, but we find ourselves favoring one part of Scripture over the other. I think that that has detrimental effects. Today's guest, Dr. Ben Glad, is going to help us to understand why. Dr. Glad is Associate Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary. He is the author, most recently, of From Adam and Israel to the Church, a Biblical Theology of the People of God. One of the reasons that we ask a question about where are we preaching from or where are we reading from is to ask questions of our identity and to figure out who we are. In this episode, you're going to hear about the importance of seeing the Old Testament as our own scripture. You're going to see the importance of a genealogy or two. You're going to see the value of reading scripture personally and the importance for pastors as they engage in their discipleship work and their leadership work, especially in the upcoming uncertain days, about having a well-rooted faith that includes the Old Testament. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this episode. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Ben. We're glad that you joined us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Today we're talking about a biblical theology for the people of God. In other words, what does the whole narrative of Scripture say about the church and what it means to be the people of God? We're reflecting on proper language, proper narrative of the story, key characters, how to understand it, all those kinds of things. And you've done a job of putting all of your thoughts into From Adam and Israel to the Church, which is a biblical theology of the people of God, published by University Press. And one of the things that really drew me to this book, because it's something I've tried to emphasize over and over and over again, is that Scripture is one story. So to kind of kick off our conversation, I'd like to ask you... um, I would like to ask you, uh, what does it mean that Israel and the church are unified in Jesus? And I'll give a bit of context to that as you're thinking about how to answer it. I mean, so often it's easy to read and preach from the New Testament. Maybe that's just kind of like a default. I know whenever I was uh, preaching on a regular basis or semi-regular basis in pastoral ministry, that it's kind of like my default to go to the New Testament, even when I'm reading from the Old Testament and believe in the Old, in the, the, the formational value of the Old Testament. Um, you know, that might be my default, but you're really trying to combat even this, this kind of functional default to the New Testament by arguing that Israel and the church are unified in Jesus. So talk to us about that. What do you mean by that? And why is it important? Yeah, I, what do I mean by that? And I, I, I get there uh, through this idea of uh, image. And I start with Adam and Eve, how they are in God's image. And then I move on how Israel, the nation of Israel, is seen as a corporate image and how they are supposed to do with Adam and Eve. They pick up the mantle of of Adam and Eve and they ultimately fail just like their their forefathers. And so um, then Jesus, who is in the perfect and pristine image of God, he then is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He's faithful. And so now we're united to Christ through the Spirit that we are now deemed 
in the corporate image of God, the restored people of God. This is a huge difference between the, the, the church and Israel in the Old Testament is that they were not the restored people of God. They were the people of God, but they're not the restored people of God. But now in Christ, we are the restored people of God because he himself is restored. And so what this does is it's going to bring, it's going to bring all of the text really together. And um, really, I, I, I think Paul and I think the, all, the, all the authors uh, of the New Testament see all of redempt, redemptive history either hanging on the first Adam or the last Adam. That is the story. That's the meta meta narrative of how the, all the little stories hang together. Some of the language in uh, some popular circles that may be uh, floating around today is this need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. And it's this desire to kind of ground and, and, um, uh, really solely things in Jesus rather seeing rather than seeing him in context it's simply to to work with Jesus and we have this this unhitching of the faith from the Old Testament uh, what do you think is at stake drawing a dividing line like this between Israel and the church yeah I think there's I think it I think it has massive implications across the board not just with who, how we view ourselves but I think even touches on the gospel if you if you disconnect us from the Old Testament, disconnect, you're ultimately disconnecting Jesus from the Old Testament. You have just huge issues uh, involved in how we understand him and how we understand just basic Christian doctrines. Uh, I think it really undercuts a lot of who he is and what we are in light of him. I, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I tell my students whenever they read, whether it's for personal use or for school to always read the Bible with their cross references to just look what are where are my quotations where are my allusions how is the New Testament author picking up on the Old Testament I, I, just a cursory glance through your New Testament will will demonstrate that they are they are not just indebted to the Old Testament but they build off of it and really it's it's really the the capstone of the story us into how uh, you might encourage us to do that. So you're a professor of New Testament. You're obviously yes. reading, reading scripture with this in mind, and, you, and you've been trained to hear Old Testament allusions in the New Testament. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, hey, here are a couple of, of ways to do that or ways to kind of prep your ears to hear these allusions or to, or to train your eyes to see them. And uh, then maybe the other way around is, what are some ways that you suggest us read the Old Testament with foreshadowing or with typology about something that is to come? Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, reading the, the New Testament yeah. with the old in mind and then right. reading the Old Testament in anticipation of the new. Right. Yeah. So those are great questions. I, uh, here are just some of the ways that I, that I tell people to do so. One is to find a good Bible with cross references. And most people, I bet it's got to be 80 to 90%, if not more, have Bibles without cross references. And cross references are those little, for those who don't know, cross references, those little sort of mysterious, very small text, either on the side or, or in the middle, or perhaps even at the bottom that refer to other passages in the Bible, whether it's uh, an Old Testament text or a New Testament text, whatever. Um, they're almost cryptic at some level. And it's difficult for me at some level to recommend 
students and friends uh, to use cross-references because they're hard to use. I don't know why publishers, I mean, I, I think I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion, but publishers have a, don't, don't help us read the Bible in this regard. This has to be one of the supreme ironies in the publishing world. If publishers had good cross-references and made them easy to use, I think we would read our Bible better because then we could just follow along. Instead, what publishers have done is that they produce these study Bibles. So they just sort of do all the work for us. And that's fine and that's a good thing, but you've got to let God's people do some work too and make our own discoveries. And uh, those study Bibles are not exhaustive. So that's one really, so I recommend the ESV has good cross-references. New American Standard has good cross-references. I really like the Holman, the Holman cross-references, the CSB or the HCSB. Those are very, very good. Uh, the Greek, there's a Greek text, Nestle Alon 27 and 28 that are, that are excellent. Those are the best, but if you don't have a Greek New Testament, then uh, uh, ESV would, would work well. So the other way, so that was one thing. And then the other way was to find a book that, puts all of the pieces together. There are many, many books that do that. Um, Greg Beale and I, we just, we just released a book a, a few months ago called The Story Retold. We go through the, this is for college students, it's for lay people and for adults um, in the church. We go through every New Testament book and we show how each major section relates to the old. So that's, that would be a way, that would be uh, a, a book that would work. I'm just thinking about some of the social media posts that I'm, I'm seeing now. And, and right. pe people are, are thinking out loud. We're in the midst of, of COVID-19, and I think we're week six into, into social distancing. Feels like week 30. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, man. It's, uh, well, wait, wait a second. I got I to gotta quickly couch that by saying, but it's been a delight to be home with all my family and children. Yes, and I'm sure course, that I, I'm sure I have been a delight to them. Right. I just yes, that's go right. Okay. All right. There's, there's all kinds of mutual delighting happening in the right, very right. home. No doubt the glad, the glad right. relationships. But, exactly. Uh, and all listeners yeah, absolutely understand it. Yes, so, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, but one of the things people have been talking about is just, you know, asking questions of their eschatology. And maybe they're not framing it so technically. Maybe they're just saying, like, you know, is, is this the end? Or what kind of end is this? And what's, what's going on? And, and in, in the, the circles that I sometimes run in, there's always a question of Israel and Israel caught up in, in the end times. And what does it mean to have a, a restoration of Israel? Um, what do you see as the restoration of Israel meaning in your biblical theology? That's a great question, Aaron. So I am obviously in the Reformed tradition, and there are different views within my camp. Uh, my view uh, is that Israel as a nation will not be restored uh, at the very end. Um, that's a very popular uh, view. There are some dispensationalists that would hold, I would say all dispensationalists hold to that, but then there are some amillennialists that would see that, not many, but some. Uh, there are uh, historic pre-mill types. I think of guys like uh, Doug Moo, uh, John Piper, that would see maybe not the nation of Israel restored, but many 
within the nation, ethnic Jews. Um, I don't hold to that view. My view is that the church has not replaced ethnic Israel. Uh, I, I, I think just the cursory reading of Romans 9 through 11 validates that. But I do think that there is an ethnic stream of, of a remnant of ethnic Jews that began with Jesus, who's obviously a Jew, and the 12 disciples. They are Jewish as well. And that that's it began in Christ, and that it will continue all the way until Christ's second coming. That it's it's always been about a remnant. Um, it's, it's always been about a minority, and uh, that just yeah. So that would be my that would be my brief take on it. Now, how that relates to now how that relates to COVID is a different thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I mean, if you want it, I mean. Is that what you're looking for? No, you're no, no. Now relate that. To... No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Can you can you point to me? Can you point me to where in the New Testament COVID is uh, sufficiently predicted? No, I, I'm just saying, right. like, like, like when this kind of thing gets right. in the air, right? When this gets right. When this gets in the yes. air, the people start asking questions, and I think yeah. that's that's one of the reasons that uh, one of the things I teach my students is to teach on hot topics in cool times, and by that I mm -hmm. mean when things aren't. Uh, you know, uh, just urgent and feeling anxious. You know, there's a time for pastoral care. There's a time for shepherding in those times. But whenever things kind of cool down, it's going to be a good time to teach about biblical theology and to to at least get your people thinking about what well, what is the relation of Israel and the church and and how do we claim the Old Testament as our story? One of the things that you say in the book is that at one point you had answered a person who asked you, "Well, how should I read the Old Testament?" And you mm -hmm. said, "You said as an observer." Mm -hmm. And now you've since rethought that, right? You've, you've kind of mm -hmm. repositioned yourself in what it means mm -hmm. to read the Old Testament. And mm -hmm. we can help our people by training them to read scripture as their own and to take some risks. And, and maybe we actually flash up on the screen when we can all gather together in a, in a building, or maybe we find a way to put it onto one of our online teaching Zoom sessions or, or services. You know, this is, this is what a cross-reference looks like and take them right back to <laughs> right. And, right. and encourage them into their own scripture. Like, of course, they're not going to be making connections that are, are profound and insightful, at least right away. And they're not going to be able to have, they're not going to have the skills that somebody who's been uh, trained in an undergraduate program or in a seminary, maybe even a doctorate that they have. But there really is a well for them to draw from mm -hmm. if they get some encouragement and if they get a couple mm -hmm. of skills and a couple of resources under their belt and th that they're used to using. And that preps them for, you know, let's hope and pray that there is not another pandemic uh, that we're wrestling through, but people are going to go through serious and sinister times, whether widely or more personally. And if they've got some confidence in working with the scriptures, that's going to help to sustain them when the next fill in the blank hits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to see ourselves. And, you know, I, I don't know, Aaron, if if it's a generational thing. I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but you pointed out pointed this out a little bit ago that people that at least my students and I think my friends we want to be part of something bigger like uh, um, as individualistic as we are in the west we are young people and adults are looking to be part of something bigger it's sort of like a post post modernity thing going on and because that because the eye has so dominated 
for so many decades now that we're kind of coming back to more community notions. And so we really want to be part of something bigger. Well, you know what? That we are the we are the people of God, and we are still living in the end times, in my view. We are still living in the last days. These times begin in the first century with the coming of Christ and will continue up until he returns. So we are we are the same people of God. This is you know, Pentecost happened in the first century, and we're still mm-hmm. flowing, we're still flowing from that. Mm-hmm. We are still God's people. So I mean, one of the most striking books, or I should say passages, uh, in the New Testament is in uh, 1 Corinthians, there in chapter 10, when he tells these Gentiles, he goes, you, your fathers, your fathers were in the wilderness with Moses. And you're like, wait a minute, these guys are Gentiles living in Corinth. They have nothing physically to do with, with what mm-hmm. happened, what, 1,400 years prior? Mm-hmm. But Paul's point is, no, it's not a physical – there's not a physical connection. There's a spiritual connection to the, to the nation of Israel there. And I think we see themselves – we are equal there with the, with the Gentiles at, at Corinth, that, we, that those are our – Moses is our is our father. Abraham is our father. You know, these are our people. These are their stories are our stories. And so we that's why we learn about them, right? Because we're learning about our forefathers and we and, and it encourages us and helps us get through these difficult times. I'm thinking about my children and they have all have elements mm-hmm. of their ancestors mm-hmm. built into their names, whether it's, it's mm-hmm. a, a modification or whether it's a direct use of an ancestor's name. And part of that is to orient them. It's to orient That's them. Exactly. Yeah, it's very that, good. That this is their story, right? This is, this is yeah. part of not just who we want them to be, but who they already are. And you're not going to yeah. understand yourself without understanding, uh, you know, let's call it um, either tenacity or stubbornness of your ancestors you know and, and depending on what the context is it could be either one right, and that's so right. important for us to understand if we if we are part of the body of christ then we are children of a wandering aramean as well mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. just part of understanding who we are in christ mm-hmm, that we've been we've been grafted mm-hmm. into this one family that uh, our faith is that which makes us part of it by the grace of god and uh, that that to understand ourselves, we have to see the story as our own and read it as our own. And one thing that I think that readers will find is that it it kind of takes time. Um, you know, I can I can look at photographs of uh, my ancestors now, and after hearing enough stories, even of my my grandfather who I never met in person, uh, when I see him, because of all the stories I've heard of him. I feel like I know him in a way. I don't know him mm-hmm. the same way or mm-hmm. as deeply as as my cousins mm-hmm. who knew him personally, or um, mm-hmm. or my mom, of course, who who was his daughter. But I I still mm-hmm. know him, and and there's an emotion that goes with that now when I see his photograph. Mm-hmm. And likewise, mm-hmm. when I'm reading the Old Testament, you know, as we're as we're deeply involved with it and reading it, that there's a way that some of the the tension and the breakdowns and the um, 
the conflict that the people of Israel go through, over time you start to feel, okay, this wasn't the conflict of somebody else. This was the conflict that my people went through too. Mm-hmm. And that's with all sensitivity mm-hmm. to, um, to ethnicities, right? To ethnic yes, of course. That's yes. with all sensitivity. That, right. That's very much, right. there, there's a learning posture and there's a posture of humility, but there is a posture of empathy that, that God, I believe by his grace, wells up within us who are learning like, oh, this is my story. And this is, this is part of it. Um, this is part of what it means to be, uh, drawn into this family. Yeah, that's very good. You know, I, uh, one of the most compelling, and you would you wouldn't think to look here, but one of the most compelling passages is the genealogy in Matthew at the very beginning. We have all those names, right? You've got fourteen generations three times, and uh, three times over, and. Uh, Every single one of those names is a story. It's not, they're not, it's just not just a name. No, with every name is, is the person's story in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Matthew gives, Matthew, the reason why Matthew gives his readers that genealogy is so they can situate the person of Christ in light of all of those stories of Jesus' ancestors to show that they have been preparation for his arrival. And, and I would argue that that's the same way for Matthew's readers. So it's not just a Christologic piece where it's like, oh, hey, that's great for Jesus. No, they are, that's Jesus' story is their story. And Matthew's audience's story is our story. In other words, we read Matthew's genealogy. That is our family history there. That's the point. That's how we locate ourselves. Just think about Matthew, Matthew 1 and one that one aspect of it that always sticks out to me is this honoring of Uriah, um, mm-hmm. the mother of Solomon, whose mother I had know. been Uriah's wife. Right. And suddenly right. what had been such a disaster that had ongoing repercussive um, breakdowns because of this, this story. I mean, this, the, the challenge of Absalom to David and the breakdown in the family. And then even as that brings in future uh, tension between Sol- uh, Solomon and and the, his uh, older brother who would want to be king as well. I mean, it's like they're not what they're not taking this tension out of the text, but Matthew brilliantly finds a way to honor Uriah, and as a result, <laughs> you know Bathsheba and Ahithophel and all those who are otherwise right. caught up in this. Yeah. And, you know, it, yeah. it's it's kind of like you know to go back to the photographs. It's like these old photographs haven't been touched up and digitally remastered, oh, yeah, that's right? Good, they're yeah, they're that's just held. Analogy, right? They're held and yeah. given to us, right? To say, you yeah. know what, this is it. This is the reality of it. And we learn and we appreciate and and, and all these things uh, kind of go into our story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think that's really good. Yeah. Joining us today is Dr. Benjamin Glad. Ben is the author of From Adam to and Israel to the Church, A Biblical Theology of the People of God. And we've been talking about some of the benefit of reading the Old Testament, the importance of it, finding our, 
our place within it and it becoming uh, our story. Uh, ben, I'd like to ask one more question as we move to wrap yes, things up, up today. One of the things you do in the book is spell out the, the threefold office of Christ, that Christ is prophet, Christ is priest, and Christ is king. Of course, Christ means king, but Jesus occupies all those offices of prophet, priest, and king. I'd love for you to share with us, um, how does Jesus occupying these offices both encourage our leadership in the church? And how does it maybe chasten or keep us humble in our leadership in the church? Right. Yeah. So this is particularly for pastors. Um, it's very, it's very thick. It's a very good question. Um, think in terms of, so let's say that let's use the office of priest here. Um, priest one, not he, priests did a lot of things in the Old Testament. One of the main things that they do is they keep the temple pure from defilement. Okay, so they do that through various sacrifices, various cleansing rituals. That's one of the major pieces. So they keep the temple, they keep the temple pure, and then they also keep God's people pure. So they do that through <coughs> Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement both purifies the temple and God's people. So they so there's this constant purification. Okay. Well, Christ is the ultimate purifier. He is the one. You see this in the gospel. It's so striking. He goes along and he's touching people and he's making lepers clean and he's restoring people. Why is he doing that? So that they can house the glory of God. Okay. So today, Jesus is still this, he is still this priestly figure, okay? And it's through his sacrifice that now we, whether or not you're a pastor or a lay person, that we are pure in him. But here's the thing. It, at some level, we have to imitate his purification. I'm not with an atonement sense, not with dealing with sin, but in some way, we need to make sure that sin is kept outside of the gates of the church. And I would say the same thing about uh, the leadership within the home, that parents need to get rid of defilement within the home. So whether it's congregation, sin festering in the congregation, look, you've got to get rid of that. You are, in some sense, a priest over this congregation. you got to get rid of that sin so that God's glory may grow warm in that environment, grow warm with these people. Because wherever their sin is, God's not, God's not going God's not going to go there. He's not going to dwell with it. So I think at all of these offices, and that's just, that's just focused there with priests, but we are all priestly figures who mediate God's presence, get rid of sin, purify our environments, make our environments um, appropriate for God's glory. I think that's such a practical piece of this uh, study and really this whole biblical theology of image. Well, I really think it has very easy implications for discipleship then, right? Both in the, the kind of spiritual optimism, the the confidence and grace that we would have for the ability of God to transform a person's life, to make us uh, image bearers, ones who can uh, reflect who Christ is in our world. And as a kind of reorienting, right? There's a, a great line from Kevin Van Hooser and Owen Strachan in a recent book called Pastor's Public Theologian. And I'm, I'm going to get it 
mainly wrong, but I'll use that. I'll, I'll, I'll use I'll use that that name dropping not as a way to to say look at the book I've read, but as a hey, this is a book that maybe you would consider reading because they're going to say what I'm going to say a lot better than I did. But but as a, a reorienting of the pastor's work as a as a disciple maker, as yeah. one as one who is to lift up Jesus and to work. Uh, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to see Christ worked uh -huh. worked in us, and that's uh -huh. just such a great reminder, especially in the midst of shifting ministry landscapes and uncertain futures about what ministry is going to look like and the form of it. That if we are able to uh, maybe try and bring things full circle, if we're able to see our story stretching so far back, then we're able to have some stronger pinnings and some stronger foundations for the tentative steps we're going to have to take into the future. That mm -hmm. there's, the stability is mm -hmm. not is not in in our immediate steps, but it's the ones it's in the length of trajectory behind us. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's that's an, that was an encouragement to me whenever uh, I came across that in in uh, Ben Hooser's book and Strachan's book. Mm -hmm. And you're reminding me of it, of it now, just this, this work of purifying and uh, coming to mind about uh, from the apostle Paul, when he, he lists out these, these various sins and then he has these powerful words, he says, and that's what some of you were. And, oh, yeah, and right, we need, we right. need, we need to remind our people that they are made pure in Christ and they are being purified in Christ that, that becoming pure and becoming cleansed isn't what happens in, in order for us to come into Christ as though it happens outside of him. And then mm -hmm. we come in, but that by being brought in, we are made pure. And while we are in, that is the place of purifying that, that we are mm -hmm. being purified mm -hmm. in Christ. And so to encourage our pastors who are disciple makers with this in mind that God yeah. can remake lives, but also the importance of the, the church community as being the context of God's purifying work that God so often makes us clean with one another and, and through one another as well. Right, right, and don't forget, don't lose sight too of the ultimate. The ultimate goal here is to be purified, so that God may dwell in mm. us richly. Mm. Right, so purification is the penultimate goal of dwelling warmly in God's presence and ultimately fully in the new creation. That is the that's where we're headed. So, mm. you know, we've begun that in the person of Christ. We've begun to taste of these new creational. Uh, strands and realities, but then we have to keep working that out in our lives by Thank you, listeners, and trust you all will have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.